Welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the everyday practice of oral surgery. The ultimate goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon could improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon himself or herself. The vast majority of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The techniques and methods discussed are only meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with personal research into the clinically reviewed and approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. All right, today I will be interviewing Dr. Thomas Schlevey. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Dallas, Texas. Tom and I trained together in Chicago, and he's a great friend of mine and was a tremendous support of mine while I was going through my residency program. Uh, Great to have you on the show today, Tom. Would you mind starting out giving us a brief history of your training as well as your current practice setup? So, I'm a, a Midwestern born, grew up in Wisconsin, and then went to Marquette School of Dentistry for my dental school training, and it was a great clinical program for me. Uh, but my oral surgery experience was pretty limited at Marquette. I don't have an oral surgery residency program, even though there is one at or there was one at the Medical College of Wisconsin right down the street. So I, I did spend some time there and did some externships at Midwestern four-year programs. And that was my entire experience. And so when I went to rank or, or try to get into oral surgery programs, I only applied to four-year programs in the Midwest, which was probably narrow-minded and a little bit short-sighted of me. But my goal was to come back to Mequon, Wisconsin when I was done and work at an oral surgery practice that existed in town. And I had already talked to the partners in that practice about coming back so that I was kind of set up. And then I went to the University of Illinois, Chicago, as you know, for oral surgery training with Dr. Maloro. And really his first year was my first year. And he's made obviously a lot of changes since then, but, but it was an interesting time in the training program. And much better now, I think, than when I started. But it was it was really Dr. Maloro and Dr. Kolakitis during my training as my mentors who encouraged me, got me excited about going into academics. And once I made the decision I wanted to do academics, then I went to medical school at LSU Shreveport through an advanced program that Dr. Ghali has set up. So I did two years of medical school down at Shreveport. And I came back to the University of Illinois Chicago and did a year of general surgery training and then went to the University of Tennessee Knoxville where I did a year of uh, oncology and microvascular surgery uh, training with Dr. Eric Carlson. Shortly after finishing, I started here at uh, Parkland or UT Southwestern. UT Southwestern is our academic arm. Parkland is the hospital that most of our residents spend their time at. But I came here and I was here for a year before Paul Tawana left to be the chair at Oklahoma and that opened up the program director spot and I became the program director here after one year. I've been here for a total of uh, four plus years now and just recently in September I became the acting chair of oral and maxillofacial surgery while they complete the search for a new chair. Of course my name is in that hat and I'm hopeful that I become the chair and I have a beautiful wife and a nice house and love life in Dallas. That's awesome, man. No kids yet, right? No kids yet. All right. Probably feels like you have several kids with all the residents you have. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I do. We have 30 categorical residents and then we have three interns at Parkland and we have five interns at JPS and then there are two maxillofacial oncology and reconstructive surgery fellows. So, what is that, 39 people running around here, trainees at any one given time, plus all the externs that come to Parkland. And, you know, as a lot of people in oral surgery are familiar with, Parkland kind of attracts a lot of extern candidates because we let them get hands-on in the clinic and, and externs like that. And there's a lot of call and a lot of trauma. So, we take up to four externs at a time. So, sometimes we have four externs a week. 
I enjoy having externs. It's fun to talk to the dental students. That's so cool. And how many other full-time faculty members do you have helping you out? I wish we had more. So we have uh, Dr. John Zuniga, who is a TMJ nerve guy, and he's a PhD in neuroscience. So he he works a lot with uh, Axigen. He's one of the, um, I guess you could call him one of the founding oral surgeons as part of Axigen and using nerve grafts. And then Josh Stone is a craniofacial trained uh, surgeon. So he works a lot at Children's Hospital. And then uh, we have Aya Sakamoto and Richard Finn. Dr. Finn is mostly at the VA, but he's been faculty here for 40 years. And then we have uh, Dr. John Stella, Fayette Williams, who's an oncology guy, Rod Kim, Herman Cow, Mike Warner. Wow. And what? I don't think I'm forgetting anyone. Okay. <laughs> but the core group of faculty here at Parkland are really myself, John Zuniga, and Josh Stone. Got it. We do most of the heavy lifting and heavy operating day-to-day residency type stuff. Okay. And what type of cases do you spend the majority of your time doing these days? I do mostly pathology. So I have sort of limited my practice in a way to pathology, but I do everything. So I still do TMJ and joint replacements and orthognathic surgery. I do a lot of implants and all on four cases, wisdom teeth, pediatric stuff over at Children's. I take a lot of trauma because we cover... I think six different level one trauma hospitals, but my, my advertised specialty, what I sell myself sort of to the community, oral surgeons, periodontists, and general dentists is that I, I do pathology. That's what I enjoy doing most. So a lot of um, osteonecrosis, the residents, uh, my nickname is Triple D. I'm the dead bone doctor of Dallas. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> and I, I mean, I see someone every day in my clinic sessions with, with osteonecrosis. Wow. From what usually? Usually bisphosphate, like Zometa related, a lot of denusumab, much less likely, you know, osteoporosis dosing, like Vosimax. But I do see quite a bit and it comes from all over sort of northern, western Texas, Oklahoma. I have patients from New Mexico because there's just a sparsity of people who want to see patients who have osteonecrosis. It's kind of a tough disease process to deal with sometimes. Patients can be pretty sick, and so they they get bounced from one person to another, and eventually they end up with an oral surgeon who knows about me, and they'll send them to Dallas. And I do a lot of cancer as well. Okay. Are you doing both the removal of the pathology and the reconstruction? Depends on what the reconstruction is. So if it's microvascular, I'm not doing microvascular by myself. So if cases require a microvascular surgeon, then I'll always bring in someone else to help me with removal and reconstruction for a team approach to it. Okay. And those cases with bisphosphonate-induced necrosis... It's got to be challenging because the drug is throughout all of the bones. It's not like radiation where you have one bad spot and you could use bones from another place to reconstruct areas of necrosis. So how do you deal with that? The way that I deal with it is very patient-specific. So when I trained with Dr. Carlson, pretty much if there was exposed bone, you cut it out regardless of how the patient was feeling. In my practice, if the patient is comfortable, then we keep it clean. And so they use chlorhexidine. They dip like a baby toothbrush or a Q-tip in some chlorhexidine, and they scrub that area of exposed bone to try to help and get it to spontaneously exfoliate. If they are in pain, they're uncomfortable, they're getting infected every month, and we're putting them on antibiotics, or they just tell me that they're tired of dealing with this sharp piece of bone, cutting their tongue, whatever it may be, then we go to the OR and we take care of it. And when I take care of it, I use use PRF as part of our surgery. There's some very limited, not great data, 
that it's helpful. The studies are extremely biased and not controlled, but it seems to work and patients do pretty well. Dr. Carlson's data and my data agrees with it. There's about a 92% success rate with surgery. So 92% of the time I go cut it out and that's it. They heal, wounds close, and they can kind of go on with their lives. So you cut it out, put the fiber and clot, suture it up. You're not placing any hardware yep. or anything. Yep. I get, you know, if I'm sort of looking at that piece of dead bone, I try to get maybe a one to two millimeter margin of what looks like healthy bone and I resect it. I don't do what I call debridement, which is sort of just grinding at it or scraping at it because debridement in the literature, if people talk about debridement, it's your debridement and my debridement could be two totally different things, but everyone knows what a marginal mandibulectomy or a segmental resection is. And so if I say I do a marginal resection, you know I'm taking a saw and I'm just cutting around that dead bone and cutting that thing out. And that's what has the higher success rate. It's almost the more aggressive you get, the more successful you are. Which can be a little counterintuitive because a lot of people are afraid of the necrosis and are trying to do the minimal amount as possible. Yeah, for sure. And I talk to patients about that all the time, that there's this 92% chance we can get them to heal, but it means you're going to have to go to the OR and you're going to go to sleep for this and we're going to you know, use PRF or we're going to do this resection. And all my patients stay overnight in the hospital and they get a few doses of IV antibiotics before they leave. And depending on how much my suspicion for sort of an overlying osteomyelitis is, so I'll look at the, the CT scans, and if they have that white sclerotic marrow kind of all throughout, I get infectious disease involved, and they get six weeks of IV antibiotics. Okay. So we try to, or I try to be fairly aggressive with it in our first attempt because I don't want to go back to surgery again. And some of these patients, as you know, are, I mean, they've got active multiple myeloma, active stage four metastatic cancers. They're not great healers. And so we kind of, or I try to do everything I can to get them to heal. That makes sense. And are there things that you see referred from private practice or solo guys, you know, that you kind of look at the case and think, I wish so-and-so would have done this. Or I guess a better question is, what advice do you have for guys in the private practice setting for treating this and referring it to you? I'll say two things. So for osteonecrosis, I don't see a lot of things that guys in private practice do that are concerning. I think oral surgeons in general have a good idea of what osteonecrosis is. And, you know, there's good literature to support watching it and keeping it clean. And in time, a certain percent, maybe 50% of them are going to spontaneously heal. But the flip side to that is if you're not comfortable doing any surgical intervention, then maybe you should just refer it out similar to what people would do for a nerve injury. You know, you may monitor a nerve injury for a little bit, but if it doesn't kind of seem like it's going in the right direction or, or they're not getting sensation back, you're probably going to refer that to someone who treats nerve injuries so they can do the testing, they can do the follow-up, they can take that responsibility. Because I do have patients who've had osteonecrosis for three years, have known about it for three years, and then they come see me with a pathologic fracture. And I, I would imagine if we saw them at day one, we may have prevented that pathologic fracture. The other thing I'll comment on right now, unrelated to MRANGE, but something that frequently drives me crazy, is when surgeons remove things entirely that may be suspicious for cancer. And then it comes back as cancer and there's no longer a lesion for me to see. And they have all positive margins on their biopsy or their, their biopsy, right? Which was an excision. And so now when I go to surgery, I'm removing a microscopic cancer that I can't see or feel. And it's tough to talk to patients about that because one, you have to describe to the patient what a positive margin means and that we actually don't know for sure there's cancer left behind because technically that last slice they looked at under histology could have been the very last cancer cell. 
it could have been. It's probably not. But then also oftentimes when we go back, we do a pretty big resection because we have to go bigger than we probably would have from the beginning. And sometimes they don't find any cancer in the specimen. Because if you think about it from a pathologist's perspective, so let's say I do a hemiglossectomy and send them half of a tongue from a prior cancer removal that was an unintended removal. They have to take slices through that large, you know, let's say four centimeter by two centimeter specimen. And they've got to find those little microscopic areas that cancer was left behind. And sometimes the slice just doesn't go through that. There's nothing to guide them anymore. Usually they have something to feel that indurated tumor or, or see on the surface. They can see the cancer and they'll guide their slices through that. When it's just a big hunk of meat, they just take random slices and hope they hit cancer in there. And so sometimes final pathology comes back and there's no cancer. And then, you know, the patients look at me, why'd you cut off half my tongue if there's no cancer? And that's why before we go to surgery, we have a long discussion about what positive margins means and that we may not find cancer. And so my rule is, you know, if you're going to do a biopsy of something, if you have a suspicion of cancer, it should always be an incisional biopsy unless the lesion is so small that it's basically impossible to do an incisional biopsy. And then you should mark it with a permanent stitch where it was so that if it comes back as cancer, the next person can see that suture and they know right where to go. That makes my life so much easier. Sorry, I got off on a tangent there. No, that's really helpful. Do you prefer for them to send you the patient without even biopsying it or would that inundate you with things that are not necessary for you to see? I actually prefer, if you are comfortable doing it, to biopsy it. For, the, for my referring you know, general practitioners, periodontists, oral surgeons, whoever it happens to be, if you're comfortable taking that biopsy, and, you know, even just having that initial discussion with the patient, you know, this is what it came back as, this is what, you know, the future has for you, I'm going to send you to, to Dr. Schlebe and he's going to take care of it for you, then it actually makes my practice flow much better if patients come in with a biopsy, a biopsy report, because then I know to get them in urgently, whereas I do get a lot of referrals just for oral lesions and for those patients, it's hard for me to schedule them because it may be it may be a cancer, it may be lichen planus, it could be anything. And I don't want to have someone waiting with an oral cancer. So then almost every oral lesion has to be an urgent appointment. And then basically my whole schedule every day is all ur- urgent appointments. And so it's it's actually really helpful if someone can do a good biopsy and just send them with a path report. And that first visit is, is us sitting down talking about that pathology and, you know, our plan for how we're going to move forward. Got it. But that being said, if you call something a biopsy, a lot of pathologists won't give you margins. Okay. If you call it an excision, they'll give you margins. Because in their mind, if you write biopsy, even if it's... So technically, there's no such thing as an excisional biopsy. Like there's no CPT code for an excisional biopsy, right? You can't get paid for an excisional biopsy. You get paid for an excision or a biopsy. Which is meaning an incisional biopsy. Right, exactly. So one thing I always tell the residents, because I want them to get paid well for what they do, is if you excise something, state what it is. It's an excision. You intended to remove that whole thing. And you get paid more for removing the whole thing. And if it comes back as a malignancy, then you excised a malignancy. Even if you have positive margins, you still excised a malignancy and you can get reimbursed at the rate for excising a malignancy. Okay. But if you had positive margins, you're thinking technically you didn't excise the whole thing. How does it work? No, you didn't, but you intended to. And that's what your CPT code is reimbursing you for. Got it. If you did an excisional biopsy, which a lot of people call their tongue biopsy, let's say you did an excisional biopsy and it comes back as a squamous cell carcinoma, 
you can bill for an excision of a malignancy of the tongue. And that's totally acceptable. Okay. That makes sense. That's really good to hear. And so I always tell the residents, there's just don't call it an excisional biopsy. Just call it a biopsy if it's a biopsy. Or call it an excision if it's an excision. Every biopsy is incisional. You're getting paid much less for that biopsy because when you do a biopsy, you're supposed to go back and do some other treatment. Right. And so you're not getting reimbursed a lot for biopsies. But if you're doing excisions, code for them. Right. I mean, even if it's a fibroma or a papilloma or a mucosal, we're calling it an excision. Yes. Those are all excision of benign lesion, and you'll get reimbursed more if you code them correctly as excisions. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that is super helpful to hear. I think, as you know, a lot of private practice docs who are spending 90% of their time doing third molars and implants might not be totally clear with how to handle pathology specimens, how to mark them, how to treat them, what to say to the patient, and how to properly refer them to the ultimate treating doctor. So that is super helpful. I really appreciate you explaining all that stuff. Well, good. So our next question for you is, what in the last few years is something you've done to improve or change your everyday practice of oral surgery so that each day is a smoother experience for you and the patients? Hmm, That's a good question. I think for myself, it was realizing that I can't just be a surgeon and be successful in practice. So even though I'm, I'm in academics, I have a faculty practice where I see patients and we have assistants and I'm the medical director. So I'm in charge of the bottom line and how much money we make and what we're producing and how much we're spending and what the assistants think of us and the clinic manager and the patient satisfaction surveys and marketing. But it was the realization that to be successful, even before I had that role, I can't just be a good surgeon. I have to be a good almost a good leader and a good salesperson. And so it changed the way I thought about how I approach referrals and patients to start reading actually about leadership and kind of how to get people on your side. So one of my favorite books was by Dale Carnegie. You know, so it's How to Win and Influence Friends. And it's a super old book. And they used to have in-person courses. I don't know if they still do them, but they used to have like Carnegie courses. And I kind of did it, did the book as if I was at a course. So I took one technique each week and applied it to my practice and to my patients and to our staff and to the residents. And... It just, it changed a lot of the way that I approach things. It's more intentional when I talk to a patient now than, than it used to be. And when I, because for implant patients, you know, sometimes you have to sell an implant patient on an all on four. It sounds very expensive. Why should they spend this kind of money? Some patients come in and they know what they want and they're, they're ready to just throw down some cash and get an all on four done. But a lot of patients aren't quite sure why they're there. And I've been a lot more deliberate in almost my my sales technique with an all-on-four patient, showing them pictures of patients who've had it done in the past, working with our assistants and our staff so that when that patient comes in, everyone on the team is actually part of the sales and marketing team. Okay. So when they come to the front desk and they know they're there for an all on four, you know, someone can say, oh yeah, we just, you know, we had a patient here last week who did that surgery and they're so happy. And then they come to the room and the assistant sits them down and starts talking to them about why they're there. And they start telling them how, oh yeah, it's so great. You just, you come in and you kind of go to sleep for everything. And the next thing you know, you've got all these implants in and your smile is back, you know 
Miss So and So was here, and look at these pictures. These, I mean, Doctor Schlevy is the best. He's so good. He's so nice. You're gonna love him. You're gonna love Doctor Schlevy. And then you come in the room, and well, they've already talked you up. The patients are excited about it, and I never did anything like that before. It was just sort of take what comes. You want it. You don't want it. Whatever. And maybe that's a little bit more of an academic mindset because if we don't make money, the business doesn't close. UT Southwestern just sort of floats us alone and we never have to pay that back. You just keep existing. But, you know, in private practice, if you're not making money, your doors are going to be shutting soon. I still think, though, that is very applicable even to private practice. Oh, yeah. Because I think in a lot of cases, the specialist, especially the oral surgeon, we're like, you know, the dentist has done the selling. I'm sure they've talked to the patient about everything. They have the patient teed up. They've referred it to us. And even a lot of private practices where you have to make money, we look at the patient like, do you want this or not? Do you want your wisdom teeth out or not? You know, do you want your implant in or not? I assume the dentist told you why you need this. (laughs) So, I don't need to do any talking about this, right? Right. I, too, have read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, many times. Yeah. And a big portion of the book talks about how important it is for you to help the patient see things from their perspective and how this will benefit them and how this will change their life for the better. And I think that's so important to do things from their perspective. Yeah. I think, you know, one of those things was, you know, talking to someone about what don't you like about your smile? And just a question like that really puts it on them to think about their smile and what they don't like and what they want to change. And then they can see what you can help them with. I don't know. I I enjoyed that book. I think there's a lot of little pearls in there that are very applicable to sort of our day-to-day lives. One pearl I use with every single patient is the chapter he says where the most important word to someone is their name. Yep. So, I always go into the room looking prior at their chart and their name and I walk in saying, Patricia, how are you doing today? Yeah. You know, it's just a small thing. Yep. But those small pearls can really make an immediate connection between you and the patient. That has been something that I've changed in my day-to-day interactions with patients, residents, staff, the doctors that I pass by in the hallway, just using everyone's name as much as I can. I really like that, you know, the sweetest sound to anyone is their own name. And I never go in a room without knowing the patient's name. And using it, you know, at the beginning of the appointment, during the appointment, at the end of the appointment, thanking them for coming in and using their name each time, I think it makes a huge difference. And I think the assistants in the office appreciate it when you use their name, you know, instead of just saying, hey, you, (laughs) come help me with this. (laughs) It makes them feel that you care about them just, just using their name. Now that I'm thinking about this book, another core principle that I remember is the importance of listening rather than talking and how, especially in the role of a surgeon, it's kind of like we think of ourselves as we're here to tell the patient what they need to do. And I should be doing the majority of the talking because the patient is the uneducated and knowledgeable one and I'm the knowledgeable one in this field and so i'm just going to pour all my knowledge into you and then you can make that decision but in some ways i've realized that it's so important to listen mostly especially with the patient that is in pain because there's some type of psychological thing that goes on where you'd say to the patient hey tell me what's been going on with this tooth and they kind of unload the history onto you and you know this tooth has been killing me and I went to the emergency room and there's something about exfoliating that story and getting that emotion out there and sharing the experience with you that makes the whole you know injection or 
the you know the procedure right. itself better <laughs> it seems like right. for some reason if they have that kind of pent up emotion and they haven't been able to connect that with the surgeon everything goes worse have you had that experience yeah they're a little bit scared of the experience if they haven't been able to vent a little bit one thing i like to do is i always i'll mirror the patient. So they'll say like, oh, this tooth is so painful. It, it's really been bothering me. And I'll just, you know, you can be like, oh, the tooth is really painful. Yeah. You know, it caused this swelling and oh, you had a lot of swelling with this. Yeah. It's been swollen for like three weeks. Oh, that, you know, oh, that sounds very difficult. Like what have you done to help this? And they can just keep going on and on. And, and as you said, they like to talk about their experience. And I think that's a good way to connect with them. And then, I don't know, I'm sure you remember Dr. Halkius from UIC, but he used to say, does that make sense? He would say that all the time. Does that make sense? And I actually, when I'm talking to a patient about osteonecrosis or cancer, I will stop during my, what I'll call like my presentation about it and ask them like, does that make sense what we've talked about so far? Do you have any questions at this point? No. Okay. Now this is how bisphosphonates work. Okay. Does that make sense? Now, do you have any questions about that? Does that make sense to you? And making sure I'm clarifying as I go through a discussion about how bisphosphonates work and why they have osteonecrosis to check in with them that they understand. And you'd be amazed at how many patients have been following with their dentist or oral surgeon, periodontist, what have you for for a year and a half with osteonecrosis, and they still have no idea why they have osteonecrosis or what it is. They know they have dead bone. <laughs> That's it. Nobody has told them, you know, I describe it and my residents actually make fun of me, but I tell patients how there are two cells and I hold my hands up and I'm like, there's one cell that makes bone and there's another one that eats away at the bone. And I like do hand signals and I tell them like that drug turns off the cells that eat away at the bone, which is good if you have osteoporosis or cancers, but it has a side effect and this is why it affects our jaw and this is why it's only in the jaw. And at the end, it's amazing how many patients go, Dr. Schlevi, nobody has ever told that to me. And I completely understand now why this is going on. That's awesome. And it's so important to educate the patient. Yeah. And then when we go do surgery, now they understand really that that drug is everywhere in their bone. And so if they fall in that 8% that doesn't heal well from my surgery, they almost expected it a little bit because they'll be the first one to say, they'll be like, ah, oh, yeah, well, Dr. Schlevi, it's, it's in all the bone. So it's not surprising it didn't heal, right? Exactly. That's very intelligent <laughs> of you. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. I know this is a gross generalization, but you know, when you talk about the marrying, I feel like that is something that most men have to learn, but most women naturally do. Like when I listen to my wife talking to her friends, it seems like that's all they're doing. They're like, oh my gosh, really? I went to the mall and bought this thing and it didn't fit. And then the, the girl's like, it didn't fit? Yeah. And, you know, men just are kind of more brutish in their way of communication. Yeah. You get a group of guys together and they talk about how they went somewhere and it didn't fit. And the next guy's like, mm, all right. <laughs> next topic. Good, good story, Grant. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't, it's not intuitive to all of us to, to mirror, but it really does get someone else talking. The other thing too, just to add to that, that I've realized that gets people talking more is to ask open-ended questions as opposed to yes, no questions. Because I found that when I come in and give my spiel about third molars and implants or whatever, at the end, after taking a deep breath, I go, this is a lot to take in. Do you have any questions about this? And I found that I get a lot more of a response when I do an open-ended question like, what questions do you have or hearing all of this, you know, what comes to your mind as a question that you might have. I feel like sometimes yes, no questions are kind of like a signal to the patient to say, 
we're trying to get this over with. We just want you to have a quick yes, no response. And that open-ended question can kind of tell the patient that, hey, I really do want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe I should, instead of asking patients now, I got to change. Instead of saying, does that make sense? Where they can have say yes or no, I should say, what questions do you have about what we've discussed so yeah, far? Yeah, stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe it won't make a difference, but there are some people yeah. I feel like Changing it does it make a Monday. difference for. <laughs> there you go. Well, that is super helpful for you to talk about becoming more than a surgeon and a leader. I think it's applicable to all of us because we're all leaders. Even if you're in the situation where maybe you're an itinerant dentist and you're going into offices where supposedly all of the management and leadership stuff is delegated to someone else and there's an owner dentist, still we are leading our assistants, we're leading our patient. We're doing so much in the way of leadership that it's so critical for us to learn leadership skills. And, and it, it really, I think, makes your life easier to recognize your role as a leader wherever it happens to be because it gets everyone on your team and makes them feel like you care about them as individuals, that you're all there for a common goal. And in those situations, people will work harder, work smarter, work faster for you because of how much you care. If you're totally indifferent, well, they're, they're going to be yeah. the same way. I totally agree. One question I have for you is because we had similar training and you're always kind of a mentor to me as far as technique and pretty much everything, you know, talking to patients, all that stuff. But I wanted to ask you, has anything changed since our ways parted with your technique of doing implants or third molars or some of the routine stuff? Any amazing discoveries or maybe something small or big that you've noticed? If I change that, this goes better. I think, you know, so one thing that I was taught by the famous Dr. Joseph Funderburk was to use the sugar which, if you remember, the sugar was a Cogswell B, I think. <laughs> and I use the sugar, and I've taught the residents here to use the sugar to get those wisdom teeth out and pop them up. And I call it that in honor of Dr. Funderburg. So Parkland residents will now know what the sugar is. But as far as implants, I think one of the biggest things that's changed for me, especially since when we were together in Chicago was my caution. I don't want to say fear, but caution, you know, in residency, you can kind of place implants with complete disregard to the eventual success rate because there's a time component to being there and it's a dental school. So if the implant fails, you just sort of fix it and replace it. And there's not necessarily a cost to the patient sometimes. It's it's just part of being a dental school patient. And, you know, you remember our clinic. I mean, I could just go grab some bone from the back and another implant and slam it in there. And that was it. But in your office, or if you're, you know, an itinerant surgeon and you're in someone else's office, there are fees for fixing a failed implant there's a time component for the patient that they weren't expecting. A dental school patient sort of expects things to take longer, but a private practice patient expects things done on a timeline that maybe they've come up with in their own head, or their general dentist has told them that this is the time it should take. You've told them this is the time it should take. And so I don't like to place risky implants in practice now. Whereas, you know, something could torque out to three Newton centimeters in residency. And I'd be like, yep, we'll leave that one in and we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> now, I'm just not willing to take that risk. I would rather sort of be more upfront with the patient and just graft a site, do good site development before putting the implant in and not being afraid to then charge the patient for that development of the site, right? Charging them for the bone graft and a membrane and the time it takes to do it. And you have to 
teach them why this is going to be better than me doing an immediate in this site where, you know, only 6% of my implant is actually going to be in the bone. And yeah, we might get some torque on it because it's a Nobel active and it torques into everything. But the rest of the implant is just floating in the socket with no bone on it. To me, that's less predictable. And I don't like things that aren't predictable. That was my follow-up question was, so does that philosophy mean that you are not doing immediate implants? I do. So what I tell every patient before we take out a tooth is, you know, we have the potential to do an immediate implant here today and we've discussed it and you know the fees and you know, but also we've discussed bone grafting and soft tissue grafting and the benefits of that as well. And so if a patient is sedated, let's say we'll put them to sleep and I'll take the tooth out with the intent that I'm going to try to do an immediate implant here. So preserving as much bone as we can. And then I'll look at the site and, you know, if, if I think it's favorable for me to put an immediate in that day where I'm going to have good torque, I'm going to have good bone contact, and maybe there's just that little buckle opening, like an anterior immediate, then I'll place that immediate implant that day. And I'll almost always, I like to graft that space between the implant and the buckle bone, and I'll even create a little pocket on the buckle and place some graft in there just to bulk things up. You know, I think in the end, the bone always dies back to the implant. That's probably true most of the time. If you leave an implant in long enough, eventually the bone is on the threads. And so immediate, not immediate, maybe long-term, the bone ends up in the same place anyways. So I, I do immediate, I do fewer molar immediates than I used to because I don't like a lot of floating implant. Yeah. Big, huge mesial and distal gaps. It doesn't sit well with me. And I think my success rate, you know, if I'm thinking about my 10-year success rate for that implant, it's probably less than if I grafted it and got some good bone there and then put the implant in. I think the literature will show it's less. You just have less control of where you put that implant when you're doing the immediate. I can be more precise and more exact with my placement if I'm looking at a nice ridge and I can place it, you know, two millimeters subcrestal if I want to. I can move it this way or that way. I can get it exactly where the restoring dentist wants it. Whereas with that immediate, you lose a little bit of that control because you kind of have to you have to get bone somewhere. Right. Absolutely. And it's not always in the ideal place. Yep. And I feel like the majority of patients, when you're explaining it to them and saying, hey, here's where the outcomes are with an immediate or not doing an immediate. And here's when we would do that and when we wouldn't. The majority are fine and are going to say, yeah, this is my body and I want what's best for me. If that means waiting a few months to have many more years of success, of course, I would do that. I find the difficult scenarios are the small percent of patients who are very pushy and are very much like, you know, when you tell them this is number 19, probably a low chance we could do the immediate, we're going to graft it, wait two or three months, come back, reevaluate, put the implant in, wait another few months. And the response is, what? Two or three months? And then another four or five months? Oh my gosh seven, eight months, this is ridiculous. And this is, they're flipping out. And I've gotten to the place now where I can take that and say, you know, this is what it is. I'm not doing something that's going to give you a bad outcome. Yeah. So if you're looking for a rush treatment and a poor outcome, I'm not the guy to do it. I feel like you got to be able to say that. And I think saying something along those lines is totally appropriate. Yeah. I tell patients that, you know, the success rate of implants at 10 years is in the 90s, you know, 92% success at 10 years. And I want your implant to be 92% successful 10 years from now. And I want it to be 100% successful. And that's 10 years. So if we have to add four months on to waiting, but, but that means you're going to get an implant that lasts you 15 years without any other cost or maintenance that seems to be a much better 
choice than, yeah, let's save this four months and slam it in today. And, you know, maybe you're going to need some perio work here and maybe you're going to need some gingival grafting and maybe, oh, maybe the implant fails and then you're going to need a big bone graft and reconstruction and wait even longer and a titanium mesh to build the ridge back up. I just tell the patients, we're going to do what is best long-term. And if that means we graft and wait, you know, an additional four months in this process, that's going to buy us 10 years of success. And if a patient said, no, (laughs) no, Dr. Schlevy, I want that implant in today. (laughs) You know, I think I would just tell them that I'm not the surgeon for them if their ultimate goal is only how fast this can be done. Right. Yeah. And I think explaining it like you're saying, you know, the vast majority will say, I totally understand. Yeah. I've never had a patient after we actually discuss it say, no, that does not make sense, Dr. Schlevy. I don't want to wait an additional four months. (laughs) Yeah. Because the surgeon can see the whole timeline and all of our experience shows us that, hey, if we're waiting a few more months in this case, it probably buys the patient another whatever, five to 10 years. Sure. The patient only knows that, you know, when the implant goes in, it's probably all the same amount of success. So why not just do it all right now? So you have to help them open their eyes and see what's going on. Yeah. I think it's tempting to look at the literature on immediates or, you know, things like, like socket shield and all this stuff and just kind of like jump on the bandwagon of doing this. But I think a lot of those things are done initially in, in academic centers where they have large implant volumes and controlled settings and residents. And, you know, if, if it fails, well, the patient was probably part of a study and I'm sure they're just going to replace it for free because <laughs> they're testing out a new technique. You, you shouldn't be testing out new techniques on your patients, in my opinion. You do what's sort of tried and true and what works. It's predictable. And, you know, 99% of the time, they're going to have a good outcome. Yeah. And 10 years from now, after thousands of patients have had the socket shield technique and it's proven to work, okay, maybe I'll try that. Yeah, exactly. But I even listened to a lecture where one of the leading experts on the socket shield technique actually said he is disturbed by the number of Instagram posts he sees of people trying it because he basically said, you shouldn't be doing this. Like this is still a research thing. Wow. I mean, he's the guy saying this is great. And he essentially said, you shouldn't be jumping on this bandwagon and everyone out there doing this. Until it's proven. Right. We don't yet understand the right patient for it, the right clinical scenario. Yeah, for sure. That's super helpful. My last question for you is, you being in this unique role of program director and chair, and this is more to help, I guess, young dentists and aspiring surgeons, you know, what is your advice to those guys who are hoping to become a surgeon? And what are you looking for? And maybe one or two main quality. I know you're looking for a ton of things, but what's on your radar? That's a good question, Grant, and it's something that I candidates often ask me as well during interviews, you know, what is it you're looking for in a resident? And to me, the people that I want coming to Parkland, and so the first one is is not really so much a quality, it's just I want residents to come to Parkland who want to come to Parkland. Like, yeah, you know, Parkland's color is purple and I want them bleeding purple. I really want them to be here and I want them to be more excited to match here than they would be to match anywhere else. But then once they become a resident, that quality I'm looking for, it's not something that's easy to get off of a piece of paper. And I think any of us who are in leadership roles and who hire and fire other individuals, you know, a person on paper is not always the same person you get once they show up on day one. And, you know, we've had outstanding residents who on paper were not the best candidates. And we've had, you know, residents who on paper are just rock stars, but as residents, they're pretty average. And I think a lot of it comes down to, and sometimes I hate to use this term because it seems to get thrown around a lot, but it's grit. 
Okay. And for residents, I think that's important because residency is long. It's hard. It's difficult to maintain like a laser focus on your goal for four or six years, especially when you, you know, you go off to anesthesia for five or six months, you go off to general surgery for six months to a year. It's hard to keep in mind the goal when you do those things. And and someone who has that grit, that laser focus, that ability to every day they show up. Yeah. That's who I want in the program. People who, like Maloro says, are drivers. Right. Not passengers. Not passengers. I want people who, when they come here, they're going to make this program better because they were here. And it's hard to, on paper, find that individual. So it's interviews, it's externships. And and this year has been really difficult because there are no externships, although we're back to having in-person externships. Everything is virtual. So we have virtual externships. So people log on to Zoom and they just come to our conferences for the week. Okay. But we don't get to interact with them, really. We give them an hour to meet with the residents. And so they get to meet with the residents for an hour and ask questions. But that is way different than coming here and being on call and suturing lacerations and working all day and pulling to it's just it's you don't get to relate to someone and that is one of the biggest criteria i use when choosing our residents how did they perform on their externship yeah this year i don't i don't have that because it's those personality characteristics that are really the most important to me if you if you meet some minimum grade board score numbers right meaning I'm not afraid you're going to fail step one of the medical boards because all of our residents go to medical school. So that's your test. You got to pass that test for me. You cannot fail that. So if you've met those academic benchmarks, now it's finding people who are going to come here and work hard. And every day they show up, they've read for a case, they're prepared. They just, they never seem to lose that steam, that drive, and whatever their goal is in the end, whether it's to get into a fellowship, to go into private practice, to open their own practice, to join a multi-specialty group, to be an academic, whatever their goal is, they never lose focus of that. And some of our best residents have been individuals who they wanted to open their own practice, and they knew that. And during their residency, they took advantage of every opportunity to learn how to open your own practice and run your own business. And, you know, how do I do this? How do I set this up so that it's favorable to me from a tax standpoint? And they've come back and given lectures to the pro and they're, they're outstanding speakers because they just had this energy and drive to be successful in that, in that realm. And they, they soaked up everything they could to be successful. And I guess if I was a student looking to go into oral surgery and I heard that the next question would be, is that teachable? Is that something I could learn or is it something that you're born with? I think that some people are, I don't want to say born with, but they're raised with, you know, the environment they grew up in, the people around them, the experiences they had in life kind of gave them the tools they need to be that, you know, driven, you know, energetic individual. And some people, you know, may not have all the tools to them, but I think there's definitely opportunities out there to improve. I mean, just what we talked about on leadership and you know, the Carnegie course and things like, I mean, you're not necessarily born knowing that people want to hear their name all the time, right? Now, some people that comes very naturally to them. They're just, just who they are. They, they kind of remember everyone's name and, and they use it frequently. That's not me. I'm not naturally very good at that, but it's something I've recognized is important to my success. And so I sought out additional education opportunities for myself to do it. 
So I think, you know, one way that you demonstrate that as a candidate is one is, I mean, externships, right? An externship takes time out of your schedule, especially if it's, it's your spring break and you choose instead of going to Cancun to come to Parkland and spend a week here. That means a lot to me. And you could have also chosen to go to any of the other hundred and some programs, but you chose to come here instead. So that's valuable for me. And then when you're here, now is your opportunity to demonstrate those personality characteristics. You know, you show up every day, you know, you've read for the OR cases, you know what we're going to be doing. You're, you're asking good questions without being annoying which is hard to do. <laughs> Residents get annoyed easily. They're very busy. <laughs> yeah. And and they don't you know, they don't always want to give you as much time as you want <laughs> as an extern, and I think most most externs realize that some don't. But when people are very busy, you got to give them a little time to work before you start inundating them with questions. For sure, and maybe the more like you're saying the more important question, because it's hard, you know, and probably very unlikely for us in this stage in our life to learn how to be proactive or show grit. Probably the more realistic thing is for someone listening to say, I have those qualities. Now the important thing for me is to show those qualities because it's one thing to have it. It's another thing to convey it to someone else. You know, I feel like I was a person who has always been very motivated, but it was hard for me to show that on externships and kind of walk that line of saying, you know, here's who I am, but not being annoying or cocky or kind of in your face or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, no resident, and, and I, I do value our resident feedback for our externs, you know, no resident likes someone who is cocky. And, you know, you're on rounds in the morning and they're basically pimping the intern or the chief. You may know a lot about hypertension, but that's not <laughs> yeah, the time. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the time is maybe later to ask a question about it, even though you kind of know the answer, and then get into a discussion about it where you can demonstrate some knowledge. I think a big part, you, you want to, on your externship, be well read for what's going on. So if you're going to go to the OR and you know that tomorrow we're doing three mandible fractures, well, read something about mandible fractures. Just read the chapter on mandible fractures in Peterson's. That way you can, you know, if a question is asked or you can ask an intelligent question during the case that, that shows you're, you're interested, that you read, that you're prepared, that's what we want. We want people who are going to show up ready to work every day. And that doesn't just mean showing up with your hands, you know, ready to do something. Your mind has to be ready to do it as well. You have to be well-read to do it. You know, in our clinic, for our residents, our resident parking clinic, I always tell them there's nothing that we won't do in this clinic if you have read about it and you're prepared to do the procedure. If you want to do a sinus lift, if you want to do a zygoma implant or a pterygoid implant, or you want to do a, a platysmoplasty and liposuction, all of those things, we can do them all. But I'm not going to walk you through it and hold your hand if you haven't read everything there is about liposuction and platysmoplasties. You basically have to teach me how to do that, and then we'll do that in the clinic. And you know, somehow figuring out who those individuals are who have that that drive to be that prepared and that interested. It's the hardest thing in academics, I think, to pick those individuals to be a part of your program. It's very easy to say, all right, we'll just take everyone who scored an 80 or above on the test. <laughs> yeah, they're probably pretty smart. They at least studied. <laughs> but... One thing that Dr. Finn, one of our faculty, looks at is the body of work. So it's, you know, from from our first data point we have on you until the last data point, have you continually demonstrated a pursuit of excellence in all that you've done? You did well in undergrad. You did well in dental school. You did your externships. You did well on boards. 
you did some community service, you did some extracurricular work as, you know, the president of your local ASDA chapter or, or something like that. All those little things kind of show us your body of work. And, and so just having a high board score is good, but having a high board score and, you know, you were involved in a lot of community service and you were, you know, obviously well-liked by others because you were president of some organization where you were elected to that position. Now we're starting to get a picture of the qualities you have as an individual and, and that you're going to handle the stress of residency and juggling 10 different things at one time because on paper you demonstrate that you've done that. You can handle that. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't envy you being in that position trying to decipher which individuals have the grit and the proactiveness to make it. But I'm sure you get a lot of quality people and it's got to be fun Yeah, surrounding yourself with so many highly motivated people. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's in the end, that's the best part of my job. I always tell people I have the best job in the world. And that's because I love being able to be a part of that growth and development from intern to chief and just being in the OR with the chief residents and feeling their growth and their success. I mean, you can just see them operating and they get it. And, you know, you knew them a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, when they could barely hold the needle in the right direction to put in a suture. And now, I mean, you could close your eyes and they can do a double jaw without issue. It's got to be so cool to see that growth and that progression compressed like that and you're witnessing the whole thing. It's got to be pretty rewarding. That's the rewarding part. Very cool. It's not the millions of dollars they pay me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's just a nice added bonus. No, I'm sure you're probably not getting millions and we really appreciate what you're doing. No. (laughs) It, It is enough for me and and my wife and my family to be happy and well off. And, you know, there's nothing that I want for or need really that I, I can't have, you know, within reason, of course. I mean, yeah, I'd, I want to have 10 Ferraris, but I mean, that's not really within reason and I don't really need even one. <laughs> I like my Subaru. It gets me where I need to go. And I like my Audi Q7. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They both serve a similar function. It gets you where you want to (laughs) go. Yep. My last pearl for you, which is probably not really a pearl, but I remember in Chicago, when I was a chief, I had this great question. And Dr. Maloro would let the chiefs in at this time during the interviews. He probably banned them after me. But I came up with this ingenious question, which was, all right, you're in a dark alley in Chicago on the south side. It's late at night. You're alone. All of a sudden, some thugs confront you, pull a gun on you and say, give me all your stuff. You give them your stuff. They say, all right, you have two options. I can take this nine millimeter and shoot you in the head and it'll be lights out. Or I can take a shotgun and shoot you in the stomach. Which one do you pick? You know, isn't that a great question for residency? Because it's like, if they say, oh, I would just take the bolt in the head and just be done with it. I don't want pain or suffering. But if they say, I'll take the gunshot in the abdomen because there's a chance I could survive. And I'm going to claw my way back into living. I'll get myself to the hospital and suture myself up. I mean, that's the guy you want in your residency program. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. I'd want the belly shot over the shot to the head. I'll consider that for interviews this year. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more of a resident question to ask, maybe than a faculty question. Yeah, and then the interviewee always goes, wait a second, is that what residency is like? It's like the next six years is going to be taking a gunshot to the abdomen? Yes. <laughs> every day (laughs) I always love introducing humor into stressful situations yeah 
That's appreciated. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been super helpful. Thank you. And I think it's going to be great information for our listeners and everyone from the seasoned oral surgeon to the student who's looking to become an oral surgeon. I wish you the best of luck in all that you're doing. Hopefully we can reconnect and do another episode down the road. Yeah, that'd be great. Pick a topic or something. That'd be great. Great. Thank you, Grant. I appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you later. Have a good day. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or feel free to text me or call me at 720-775-5843. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or any feedback on certain episodes that have already aired, I would love for you to call or email me. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.